welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed mental health therapist and true crime enthusiast. And I'm Trisha, and I'm a Beatles fan. Wonderful. Glad to have you here, Trisha, with us. Thank you. Please note, this episode will include graphic depictions of rape and murder, which may be triggering to some listeners. Please use discretion while listening. Well, we learned from the first two episodes that Ted Budney grew up under strange circumstances. He believed his mother was his sister. He was most likely a victim of abuse. He was introduced to pornography at a young young age. He most likely developed reactive attachment disorder, which led to delays in speech and social understanding. And then he went on to have conduct disorder and presented more violent tendencies, more compulsion control issues, and more social awkwardness. Eventually, he found a girlfriend and maintained the relationship for two years before she terminated it and moved back to California. Courtney, is it safe to say by this time, Ted had reached an antisocial personality disorder status? Yes, I think we can solidly say that Ted's childhood predilections have shown themselves to be a clear and consistent pattern of behavior. So the DSM-5, or the, you know, psychiatry bible, essentially identifies that a person meets criteria for antisocial personality disorder if they demonstrate ongoing traits starting by age 15 that include having identity and self-esteem focused on power and ego that uses that through focusing on personal and immediate gratification, having a lack of empathy and remorse, inability to form mutually intimate relationships, For example, relationships um, would be more like interactional and based on controlling or manipulating others for their own gain. And having personality traits that include manipulation, deceitfulness, callousness, hostility, impulsivity, irresponsibility, and risk-taking. Ted clearly meets all of these criteria. Well, now I've read many definitions of sociopath versus psychopath, and it's kind of confusing. It doesn't seem like there's a clear understanding between the two. The one that makes the most sense to me is that psychopaths are born and sociopaths are made. What do you think and which do you think that Ted is at this stage of his life? There has been so much debate on this topic, Um, but the most recent research that I've read identifies some pretty clear differences. Um, So according to an article in Psychology Today, a psychopath is considered to be completely void of emotion and empathy and acts in a way that is more cold and calculated. Um, They have no moral compass at all. Where a sociopath, on the other hand, has some very limited ability to feel empathy or remorse, and they may understand that what they're doing is wrong, but are able to rationalize their behavior Um, in order to not feel that guilt and shame about it. So kind of based on the things that we've learned about Ted through these episodes, I personally believe that Ted was more likely a sociopath. So based on what we know about his history and comments he's made about his actions, I think he maybe like knew that it was wrong. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Um, And I had talked to you earlier about if you could have more than one cluster B trait. Um, Do you think it's possible that Ted also was a narcissist with narcissist personality disorder? It is very possible. Um, There have been 
probably a dozen different diagnoses thrown around by different psychologists um, with regards to TED, uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next episode. But it is absolutely possible to have both like antisocial and narcissistic traits. Okay. Well, this is just an interesting side note. Ted worked, Ted worked at a crisis center for several years taking phone calls from suicidal people, um, and he was there to try to talk them down and be there for them. Um, it's here that he met Anne Rule in 1971, and she is that crime writer, uh, amazing, lots and lots of books she used to be on the police force. Um, anyway, they spent many nights together working at the crisis center. Anne's book, The Stranger Beside Me, um, said that in it, she said that she was a close friend, and she said that she would trust, trust him watching her children. Um, she was very shocked by what transpired. Courtney, based on what we know happens, is it weird that Bundy worked at a place like this? I mean, reaching out to struggling people and trying to help them? It's definitely an interesting fact. Um, not necessarily surprising. So Ted did have a degree in psychology. He studied that in college. Um, and he'd been active in his church growing up. Um, so working at a crisis line actually fits pretty well into the persona that Ted was maybe trying to cultivate. And most likely, in his mind, there would probably be no connection between working this job and the eventual killings he ended up doing. Like, they'd be two completely separate things. Right, and uh, something else that I'm not sure if we're going to touch on this, but I'll just, I'll just say it, Ted was also pretty active in politics, or he tried to be in his college years. Um, so just keep that in mind. He was a very charming person, and he kind of knew a lot of people in the local politics and he was a staunch Republican and all that good stuff. Okay, so we're going to start talking about the murders now that we went over a little bit of that stuff. Uh, so they started on, as far as we know, this is the, the first one we know of it. There's um, rumors that he was killing people younger in, right. his, in his younger teen years, but the, that wasn't confirmed. So on January 4th, 1974, Ted broke into the basement bedroom of who would be his first victim, 18-year-old Karen Sparks, who was a UW student. She was asleep while Ted ripped off a piece of her bed frame and then viciously, viciously beat her and sexually assaulted her. To quote what Bundy did to her, Karen had this to say, he took some metal thing and he rammed it up my vagina and it split my bladder. Sparks later said that she thinks the only reason she survived the attack was because Bundy heard her male roommate in the next room talking in his sleep, and it scared him off. Prior to the attack, she thought she saw a man peeping through her window, but then he was gone, so she thought she might have managed have imagined it. Karen did survive the attack, but was left with brain damage, sight, and hearing loss. Courtney, what's going on here? What would spur Bundy to finally commit this kind of violence? Uh, why would Bundy sexually assault her with a metal object? Do you think that he violated her as well with his own body? Well, there's kind of a multi-part answer to this one, right? So research about people who kill suggests that this attack was kind of a logical next step in Ted's escalation cycle. There's a pattern that shows that kills tend to start with something small and then slowly build up to the eventual murder. So for Ted, it started with viewing pornography and then fantasizing about what he'd seen. Then he moved up to peeping at women through windows and then letting him fantasize about sexual violence. And then to use Ted's own words, and I quote, I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, more graphic kinds of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something that is harder. 
something which gives you a greater sense of excitement, until you reach a point where the pornography only goes so far. You reach that jumping off point where you begin to wonder if maybe actually doing it would give you that which is beyond just reading or looking at it, end quote. Eventually, he needed to actually act on his impulses and fantasies to get the same feeling. So you say he had to act on his impulses. I mean, is it, is it like when I have a craving for whatever, you know, like for a regular type kind of an addict, is that like an impulse and he can't tamper it down? I mean, or is he letting some other part of his mind take over and, and just ignoring what he shouldn't do? Um, I imagine it's probably a little bit of both. Like, the, the urge would have gotten really, really strong for mm-hmm. him. Um, and he so he would be craving that feeling. Um, in his mind, the only thing that would satiate him is to actually go through with the violent act. Right. So he's probably thinking about it 24-7. Quite possibly. Okay. Yeah. Um, And to follow up on kind of the second part of your question, right, about um, being sexually assaulted with a metal object, um, if we think about what sexual assault is really about, it's not actually about sex. It's about power. Um, And so in order to feel more powerful, um, you know, many rapists have this belief that women are just objects and will actively try to dehumanize them in any way possible. So using objects is one way of doing this. Um, And then it can also kind of serve as a way to serve kind of that sadistic side um, of Ted to increase the pain and suffering of the victim. Do you think he also sexually assaulted her physically? Or do you you think that it was just with the, uh, the weapon of his choice? I mean, there's no reason to believe that he didn't also rape her, but I don't know for sure. Like, that was never proven. And, mm-hmm. and I think I've read some articles about her, and she doesn't remember the attack. Like, mm-hmm. lucky for her, I mean, I guess. <laughs> right. That was pretty pretty gnarly. Well, mm-hmm. Ted's first uh, known murder victim was another UW student, 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy. This took place on February 1st, 1974. So that was... Okay, about a month later. When Linda did not show up for work the following morning, police were called. Her bedroom was neat and tidy upon arrival, but she was not in sight. Upon further investigation, they found blood on the pillow and sheets of the bed hidden beneath the comforter. They also found a bloody nightgown in the closet. The only clothes that were gone were the ones she wore prior. Her keys, backpack, and a pink satin pillowcase were also missing. It appears that Bundy had dressed her in her clothes uh, that she had worn the night before before kidnapping her. Linda's roommate, Monica Sutherland, reported that Linda was creeped out about two months earlier by an incident um, at a laundromat where a man came in scoping out the place. He had no laundry. He looked at her, uh, he turned around and left, but she remembered it enough to go home and tell her roommate about it. The month after that, Sutherland said that she recalled an incident where the neighbor's dog started to bark enough to where she looked outside and saw a stranger outside of her door holding the neighbor's small dog by the neck and shaking it. When confronted by the neighbor, he turned and fled. Turns out Ted lived about three blocks away. What do you think, Courtney? Do you think he was stalking her? Does stalking usually precede violence? It's very likely that Ted was stalking Linda. Um, In interviews after his conviction, he described using a third person, of course, so it could not be considered a confession, that um, 
He described repeatedly stalking victims and slowly getting closer to them physically while fantasizing about rape and murder. And while not all violent acts are preceded by stalking, a person who engages in stalking very often escalates that behavior into violence. I could probably go on for a while about the ridiculous stalking laws that offer practically no protection for victims until it's too late, but that would probably be a topic for a whole other episode. Yeah, that would be very scary to be stalked and what the I mean, you'd have to prove enough to get a restraining order, and then what's that do? I mean... Right, they can't do anything right. until it's someone late. breaks it. Yeah. Well, eventually Linda's skull was found, along with several other bodies, 23 miles east of Seattle. Courtney, we have what may be his first kill. Remember, it could have been sometime in his teen years. What do you think is happening internally to Ted at this time? So by this time, the biggest internal change for Ted is probably the emotion he experienced during and after the act of murder. We could imagine kind of that a wave of relief and euphoria washed over him, as if it was the first time trying a new drug and getting the ultimate high. And so all of his previous behaviors, the pornography, the peeping, the assault on Karen Sparks, were all creating kind of a slow build of pressure leading up to this eventual release that he'd been searching for. Ted, in his final interview, only hours before his execution, sat down and talked with psychologist Dr. James Dobson. You can find this on YouTube. I recommend watching it. You can kind of read Ted's body language and see what a piece of shit he is. Um, He expressed that only hours after his first killing. It was like coming up, this is a quote, it was like coming out of some kind of horrible trance or a dream to have been possessed by something so awful and so alien, and then the next morning wake up from it, remember what happened, and realize that basically in the eyes of the law and the eyes of God, you are responsible. He then said he was absolutely horrified that he was capable of doing something of this nature. There is just absolutely no way to describe first the brutal urge to do that kind of thing, and then what happens is once it has been more or less satisfied and recedes, you might say, or spent that kind of energy, then I became myself again. Um, When you watch this YouTube video, you can see Ted looks like he's struggling with himself because he's trying to play off like he feels bad about it, but I call bullshit on that. I don't think he felt bad or horrified or particularly bothered by what he did at all. Do you agree? Why or why not? So... Do I think he experienced true guilt or shame about killing? No, I don't. Um, Surprised at himself or at how good it made him feel? Maybe. Um, I think it's possible that he recognized how horrible other people would find his actions. And maybe there's some regret about, like, having to clean up the mess he left behind to avoid being caught. Um, But again, I think the comparison to an addict fits really well with this. For example, like a heroin addict might steal, hurt people they love, cheat, debase themselves, whatever it takes to get their next fix. But then once they've satisfied that urge, they can relax for a while until that high wears off and they have to do it all over again. Okay. Well, it appears that after his first killing, he really got a taste for murder because between January and July, Ted presumably presumably killed several women in the Seattle area and one in Corvallis, Oregon, which is about 60 miles away from us, 45 miles away from us. Uh, the victims' names are Linda Ann Healy, who we discussed, Donna Gail Manson, 
Susan Elaine Rancourt, Brenda Carol Ball, Georgianne Hawkins, Denise Snoslind, and Rebecca Kathleen Parks. Apologize if I said any of those names wrong. All of these women had long dark hair powdered down the middle and they were in their early 20s. Apparently he would typically bludgeon his victims to death and then would spend the night with the bodies, wash their hair, apply makeup, and violate the corpses. He would come back over and over to the bodies and continue to violate them until they were so decomposed uh, that he couldn't or animals had gotten to them. Oftentimes he would cut off their heads and separate them from their bodies, possibly keeping them as a memento for a while before disposing of them. He is reported to have said, when you work hard to do something right, you don't want to forget it. Dick. Courtney, what causes a person to do this? What kind of gratification are they getting? And is there something unique about necrophiles? Well, like most of us who, you know, like to look back at old soccer trophies or awards or, you know, readathon trophies, if you're me, um, those things that remind us of our great achievements, serial killers often do the same. It's common for serial killers to either keep some kind of trophy, like a piece of jewelry or a lock of hair, or to revisit victims or the scene of the crime, or both. So doing this helps them hold on to the memory of their, quote, achievement, um, and to relive those feelings. So much like looking at a cast photo reminds me of my happy memories from a high school play, um, Ted revisiting those bodies brought those same kind of feelings of remembering how good it felt to him to be murdering her. So he was proud of himself. Yes, absolutely. Ew. Yeah. And now the necrophilia part of it um, might be related to, again, that sort of reliving a happy memory thing. Um, but necrophilia also exists outside of murderers, so it could be its own kind of separate thing. Um, for Ted, perhaps he chose to have sexual intercourse with his victims after he kills them because in that way he has total and complete control over them, which if we look back to things like reactive attachment and conduct disorder and antisocial and narcissistic personality disorder, control is very, very important. Do you have any idea why he wasn't grossed out by these de decomposing corpses? I mean... That part baffles me because he would go back, you know, for days until it was just impossible to do what he wanted to do to them anymore because they were so badly, you know, messed up. You know, if you kind of think about it, um, sociopaths, like I presume Ted to be, right, they are great at rationalizing their own behavior in their heads. So there may have been some kind of unrealistic thought process in his mind that made it feel okay. Um, and on the other side of things, there's also kind of this idea of getting accustomed to gore and things like that. So, I mean, if you go through the act of killing someone, which is extremely violent and gory and all of that, you know, the sight of a decomposing human body maybe just isn't that gross to you anymore. You get used to it. Hmm. All right. 
Well, Bundy was a good-looking and charismatic man. Um, remember I said that he was involved in local politics and he had aspirations to be a lawyer. We knew he was able to mimic common social interactions because although it ended, um, he did have a relationship for a couple years prior with um, his college girlfriend before the murder murders. Bundy would wear fake casts or use crutches to get women to help them, and that is usually how he successfully kidnapped them, sort of like in Silence of the Lambs. I think they might have borrowed Ted Bundy for a part of uh, Buffalo Bill. On July 14, 1975, Janice Ott and Denise Machind were the unfortunate victims of Ted. Lake Snohomish in Washington State was super crowded that day, and Ted was wearing his cast, and he was asking several women for help getting his boat onto his car, and his car was a little uh, Volkswagen Beetle. Well, these two, unfortunately, fell for his deception and paid the ultimate price. Courtney, obviously his compulsions and impulses are getting stronger, maybe even out of his out of control. Why would he need to murder two women in one day and like they were hours apart? So what's what's going on here? Well, it's true, like in general, Ted's killings were getting more frequent, but my best guess is that taking of two women that same day at the lake was likely due to just an overabundance of temptation. You know, a park full of potentially thousands of bikini-clad co-eds. Ted would be kind of like a kid in a very sick candy store. Why choose just one? <sighs> Why do you think he targets women who are kind enough to help him out? One would think he would be more inclined to go for the ones that snubbed him. Because there were several that day that he asked for help and they kind of told him to F off. But we have to remember that Ted was a smart and organized killer for the most part. He knew it would be much harder to get away with abducting a woman who was going to fight back or try to make a scene. So he would choose women who went willingly with him in the guise of helping him. And then it was much easier to overpower them and get them in the car, since they're already next to it, probably with the door open. So that's how he was able to take so many victims in public places, sometimes in broad daylight, like at the park. Mm -hmm. And besides, his hatred wasn't just towards women who rejected him. It was towards all women, and especially women who had long, dark hair parted down the middle. Okay. Well, in August 1974, Ted moves to Utah to continue his law education. And in November of 74, Ted attempted a kidnapping of Carol Durant. She was 18 and at a local shopping mall. Ted posed as a police officer and told her that someone had attempted to break into her car. Through his charm, he was able to convince her to get into his Beetle. I guess he must have told her it was his undercover car uh, to go down to the cop shop. At one point, he attempts, attempts to cuff her and then threatens her with a gun. Somehow, she is able to jump out of the car and flag down a vehicle. Luckily for her, she was okay and she was able to provide the police with a description of Bundy and his car. But later that same day, he was successful in kidnapping and murdering 17-year-old Deborah Kent after she left her high school. In January 1975, Ted was in Colorado, um, and I think he was there skiing or something mm -hmm. like that. And he abducted and killed a 23-year-old Carrie Campbell while she was on her way to her, her hotel room to retrieve a magazine. I remember... Uh, she was down in the lobby with her husband, I think, and she wanted to go get a magazine, so she ran upstairs, and then she never came back. Her body was found five weeks later, three miles away from the inn. <clears throat> On August 16, 1975, Ted is pulled over for evading a police officer after he was seen lurking outside of a home of a couple young women. 
During his police lineup, Carol from earlier was able to identify him as the man who attempted to kidnap her from the mall. He was tried in 1976 for this and received one to 15 years for aggravated kidnapping in a Utah state prison. Courtney, is there anything you want to comment on at this point? He is in custody for kidnapping and should have been kept away from the public, but we know that's not how Ted rolls. Now, being in custody is when some of the more traditionally criminal criminal traits of somebody with antisocial personality disorder maybe can be seen. Um, so not everyone with antisocial personality disorder is a killer, but many do engage in criminal behaviors and have similar thought patterns. For example, like I talked about a little earlier today, Ted could be impulsive and selfish and self-centered and highly focused on doing whatever it takes to get what he wants. So including using his fake charm to manipulate psychologists, guards, other prisoners, and maybe even judges. And I believe his next actions speak to this very well. Right. Um, so during this time in Utah, the Colorado police found hairs in Bundy's car that leaked him to Karen Campbell, the nurse he murdered in Colorado. So now he's charged with first-degree murder and was transferred to Colorado to await trial. Well, Ted wanted to defend himself during this trial. Um, he fancied himself almost a lawyer, and he had been attending law, law school for a while. And because of this, he was granted access to the law library, which was on the second floor of the courthouse. Um, I believe that he did kind of make friends, or he was able to fool the the people guarding him and and like you were saying he was very charming with them so they kind of they let his leash be a little bit longer than they should have right so mm -hmm. the judge mistakenly allowed bundy to be free of restraints during this time because of his charm and on june 7th 1977 bundy found his opportunity to escape while the guard was out smoking he jumped out of the second story window of that courthouse this is a quote Honest to God, I just got sick and tired of being locked up. Poor Ted. Uh, it was ten minutes later that the guards realized he had escaped. Bundy had fled to the mountains, walked back to Aspen, stole a car, broke into a cabin, and actually evaded the capture for six days until he was pulled over for weaving on the road. After this escape, they moved Ted to Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. He then proceeded to pull a Shawshank Redemption type of escape. Well, sort of. Bundy lost 25 pounds so he could fit into the carved opening of the ceiling. There was a duct there. Um, when he was ready to go, he arranged books under his covers to look like he was sleeping, and he crawled through the ceiling duct. After his escape, he took a plane to Chicago, a train to Michigan, drove to Atlanta, and took a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. Courtney, I am thinking that Bundy is a bit of a thrill seeker. Um, isn't this type of behavioral behavior typical in psychopaths and or sociopaths? They don't feel a whole lot of emotion, but excitement is something they do feel, and they can feel that by breaking the law um, or murder, etc. Yes, it's very common for psychopaths to have a reduced aversion to risk. So they get a thrill from outsmarting, outmaneuvering, and getting away with things, especially crimes. So I'm sure that for Ted, there was a sense of excitement about pulling off such a daring escape. Additionally, if we go way back into Ted's mindset, 
back to when he was a young child trying to gain control of his life, we can kind of see this as a big fuck you to the prison system, which was supposed to have control over him. Right. Yeah, he want, he he was sick and tired of being locked up. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <sighs> okay. Well, in January 15th, 1978, around 3 a.m., Bundy broke into the Chai Omega sorority house with the Wooden Club. There he strangled and killed Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy. He bit Levy. This, this comes back to bite him in the ass later, so... <laughs> He also beat uh, Karen Chandler, who had almost every bone in her face broken, along with a broken arm. Kathy Kleiner was also beaten, beaten so badly that her jaw was hanging off her face and only partially attached. Her jaw was broken in three places. After this attack, Bundy went directly to a house a few blocks away, where he broke in and savagely beat Cheryl Thomas in her sleep. Courtney, Ted had just successfully escaped prison, gotten across the country, why would he do this? Why, why is he risking this? Why did he need to attack five women in such a short amount of time? What is going on in his brain? Now, this is a place where maybe we can clearly see his impulsivity um, interacting with his need to kill. So he'd been locked up in prison for a good long while, unable to satisfy any of his sexual or violent urges, right? No porn, no access to women at all, and definitely not murdering people. And so the pressure building up inside Ted was probably ready to burst, and the multiple victims in the Chai Omega house was possibly seen as a perfect opportunity to release all of that pent-up rage and frustration at once. And then once he started, you could imagine that he probably had a hard time stopping himself, which kind of turned this into more of a spree-killing than his typical murdering style. Yeah, I didn't think about the fact that he was locked up for a year or two, whatever, in between his escapes, um, and that it would be building up. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obvious now that you say it, but I didn't think about that. Okay. Well, Bundy was still not finished. His final murder, and I don't want to say it's the saddest, but it's, it's pretty sad. She was only 12. Kimberly Leach, he abducted her outside her junior high school in Lake City, Florida. Well, so Courtney, this is outside his typical MO for victims. Why do you think he abducted and killed such a young girl? I think at this point, Ted may have just been feeling kind of desperate. He was not familiar with Florida and the way he was up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, So his regular hunting strategies wouldn't have been effective since he didn't know his way around. Um, He may have still been reeling from the spree at the sorority house, which would likely have spiked the intensity of his urges, making them harder to resist. And so Kimberly, unfortunately, may be just presented as an easy victim who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it might not necessarily have been that she was young, she was just there. Right. Okay. Finally, in February 1978, Bundy was caught as he was suspiciously loitering late at night in a car that turned out to be stolen. He tried to fight the officer who pulled him over, but was eventually subdued. He lied about his identity, but after two days, he admitted who he was, and a witness who saw Bundy leaving the Chai Omega house was able to help identify him. He was then charged with two counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted murder. I always thought it was kind of amusing how many notorious criminals get caught with routine traffic stops. Right. Yeah, and there have been lots who 
like I, Ed Kemper, I think got pulled over and he had like a body in his trunk. Um, yeah, I think that's Mm -hmm. been happened a lot. I mean, he didn't get caught at that time, but yeah, it is interesting how (laughs) it's just those little things. (laughs) He's so sneaky with his murder, but he's not sneaky with his loitering. So, and it was the same in Colorado, right? Right. When he got pulled over because he was weaving through the traffic. I want to say that he was, um, like starving in Colorado and that, I mean, I I would have to double check that, but I, I think I remember one of the, uh, interviews I watched of him he hadn't gotten food on one of his escapes so he was really hungry so that might have been why he was weaving but don't quote me he was also like a pretty bad alcoholic so that could have something to do with it okay well that is our summation of the murders um, for this episode yeah I'm really excited for next week Um, we're gonna dive into the outlandish spectacle that was his trials and all of his appeals um and his marriage his marriage during one of his trials and his child we'll get to that too so stay tuned next week will be i think the final installment yeah of our ted bundy mini season yeah and uh i want to thank we want to thank all of our followers on our instagram page i think Courtney said we had 19. Yes, 19. If you haven't followed us or liked us, you can find us on Instagram at Addicted to M Podcast. Okay, thank you for that. And then um, also everyone who's followed us on Podbean, thank you. We are working on trying to figure out how to get us on uh, more platforms. But again, we're new at this. It took us about 45 minutes to set up for today. So <laughs> we appreciate your patience and we will continue to improve. And as always... See you next Tuesday. Bye.